Welcome to Haunted Hospitality, Southern Stories Told by Spooky Gingers. I'm Robin. And I'm Zoe. And I have a story for you today. But first, Robin, how's life? Life is good. Life is good. I um, Have you heard of Candy on Hulu? No. Like the show Candy? Okay, well, I binged it last week. It is very good. I didn't expect it to be so short. I got to, like, the start of episode five, and I figured I kind of wanted to gauge how like long the season was because it's a mini series and I figured okay well you know fifth episode sometimes they usually are like a seven episode eight episode or ten episode cycle for these kinds of things and I look it up just how many episodes are in candy and it was like five and I was like oh no okay (laughs) but anyway I I uh oh so so many interesting things about that show if you if you want like a really in-depth critical analysis listen to um I think it's like a Vanity Fair podcast called Still Watching. They go over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I'm just very good. Is it, what What is like the basis of it? Like, Oh, I didn't go into that at all. Uh, it is about... <laughs> uh, Candy is based off of a murder that happened in um, Texas in, I want to say, the 1980s. So, um, or, okay, uh, murder is actually a very loaded term a a killing that happened and then i think the central question of the story is was it a self-defense move or was it a murder and i i'm not gonna get into any more except to say uh ambiguity rules at the end of the day got it okay and Mm -hmm. is it i'm guessing it's based on a true story or is it a like documentary it is based on a true story. Okay. I started watching The Staircase on Netflix after that thinking, because it's also based on a true story of, well, of a thing that are you like, is this an accident or was this a murder? But I had to stop that because it it, it was a documentary and it just showed so many of these gruesome photos like mm. of the crime scene of this woman's corpse. And I was just like, it. You know, for me, I'm exiting out of this. I, 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 I don't have to see this. Yeah. Okay. Well then. How was your life? Oh, uh, it's good. Kari got me Sims 4. I may be slightly obsessed. So, <laughs> so you know the Sims games? Yes, I have heard. Okay. I'm like, I don't, I know you're not into gaming, but I don't know how not into gaming you are. But no, Sims 4. I'm aware of the Sims. Okay. Well, he got me Sims 4, which is the most recent one. And he got me quite a few packs with it, too. Like, I love playing The Sims, but I am kind of, like, anti the company that makes The Sims. Because what they do is give uh, The Sims game, you have to buy it, and I think it's, like, 40, 50 bucks. And then they have packs that they're $10, dollars $5, $10 each. But if you want to do anything in sims you have to get at least like four or five different packs and you if you bought the base game and all the packs you can easily spend over five hundred dollars okay yeah so that to me i'm like that's a little cringe but (laughs) um i'm really enjoying playing the sims because i created kari and i in the sims and we go on dates and festivals and stuff like that. And Kari works as a tech guru and I'm a stay-at-home author. And we have a cat that we rescued off the streets. And her name is Chloe. And she is fiercely protective and I love it. 
and it's just so much fun and I built us a dream house and then I have a torture basement in the in it where I can like kidnap and kill people it's great wait okay (laughs) (laughs) are you serious about that last bit oh no 100% I can show it to you later but like (laughs) okay it's like I have little rooms it's a little basement and you go into the rooms and what you can do is you can lock the door for everybody but the character so they can't leave the rooms. Um, this is what we call everybody a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> well, this all started because oh, okay, so there's this TikTok TikTok person. A TikTok. A TikTok. No, a TikTok creator. Her name's Hip Hip Renee. Love her to death. She's hilarious. And she does Sims 4 stuff. And she does this thing called her murder gauntlet. And Mm -hmm. what she does is she puts, like, eight Sims. And they each have their own death rooms. And, like, she sees who can be the last survivor. And so, like, this Sim is going to die by fire so there's a bunch of fireplaces and flammable things in the room and it's like this sim is gonna die by drowning and she puts a pool in the room and the swim the sim has to swim until it drowns like and she just sees who can get to the top and she started it with like season one and season two doing other sims creators on tiktok and youtube but um as it gained popularity people are like can i please be in your murder gauntlet and so now you have if you're a patreon she can use your sim to be in the murder gauntlet and i'm like this is just it's beautiful okay yeah. okay um i'll be i'll be very honest you i i don't quite understand but it's okay um okay okay cool i'm happy for you <laughs> The baseline is it's fun to murder sins. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Anyway, do you have a something something for us? I have a something spooky. Ooh. Um, I'm taking us to jolly old England. Please don't do That's that. That's the last time I'm going to <laughs> try to do that. Uh, we are going to, and I'm sorry if I butcher this, Leicestershire. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to tell you about Black Anus. Black Anus? Anus. Oh, okay. A-N-N-I-S. Okay. Okay, so Black Anus is a creature with blue skin. She is known as a hag, which I googled, and that is basically an old ugly witch. Yes. All right. All right. She has iron claws that she used to dig out her cave in which she lived in the hills near Leicestershire. Okay. The sun will turn her to stone, so she only comes out at night. And when she does, she preys sometimes on the local sheep. When shepherds would lose sheep, they would go, ah, that black anise she. But she also preys on children. <gasps> Yes, one story. I, I know, big shocker for a folktale, right? Mm-hmm. One story is that these three children were out in the night collecting firewood for their stepmother when all of a sudden she came upon them, ready to grab them with her iron claws. Quick thinking, they dropped the firewood and ran back to the house. And Black Annis ran after them, but 
got her legs cut on the firewood. So she's very health conscious. She went back to her cave, (laughs) put healing ointment on it, and then ran back to the kid's house and caught up with them just as they got to the front door. And so their dad opened the door because they were knocking and he had a gun Uh and he shot after. No, no, he didn't have a gun. He had an axe. That makes more sense for the time period. He had an axe and he threw it at Black Annis. And so she got hit with the axe, I think. And then she's running away, running away, going back to her cave. But ointment, you know more ointment but it was christmas eve oh turning over into christmas day and when i i think this is what it means when the when the clock struck midnight the town bells happened and they were called christmas bells and i think the fact that she was out of her cave when the christmas bells came on and when it was christmas day meant she killed over and died Oh, So that is one story of Black Annas, possibly the last story of Black (laughs) Annas. But it is said that villagers could hear her grinding her teeth from very far away, or they could hear her howling. And they knew then they needed to protect their house, because not only would she attack you if you were out, she would sometimes literally be waiting outside your house, sneak an arm in, and then grab you. And some say this is why the windows, apparently, in traditional houses in Leicestershire are so small, so she could only get one arm in. Uh, So what they would do, they would put kind of herbs, like, that kind of, like, have, like, protective things on them at the windows, because at this point there was no glass in the windows. Or they would put, like, leather or tanned skin or something over the windows to protect them, like from an animal. But skin actually does factor into the story in a different way because when she would get a child, she would eat them, but she would save the skin, tan it, and then you wear it for clothing. That's So that's the story of Black Annis. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Robin. You're welcome. Actually, there are two... Okay, so there's two theories about, like, well, there's a few theories about how okay. she came to, to to be a thing. One of them is that there was a Dominican nun who lived in the area. Her name was Agnes Scott, and she, in the 1400s, led and cared for, like, an isolated group of sick people. And so I don't know quite how, like, that evolved into this, but she's also she's also been called, like, Black Agnes, Black Annie, stuff like that, but she's most known as Black Annis. And then the other idea is that Black Annis is... A, a lasting, think of like descendant, but as an idea, like as in like, this is how the the previous belief or memory in this one goddess lives on, um, because originally like the fertility goddess, I guess of the area, instead of Europe, I'm kind of confused on that end to be honest, but it, originally it, she was like the goddess of motherhood, but she was also known for eating children, and so they think potentially that kind of idea morphed over the centuries into Black Annis. Got it. Yeah, honestly, I feel like this is something if we were in England, we could do a whole episode on, Mm -hmm. but we ain't, and this ain't it, so. Well, maybe, I'm not saying because you probably didn't plan on this, but maybe it could be a Patreon episode in the future. Maybe it could. Anything Mm -hmm. is possible anything anything (laughs) well all right well thank you so zoe do you have a story for us today yes i do trigger warnings for uh children death pedophilia suicide and sexual assault okay yeah i literally googled arsons in the south 
because I wanted to find something that we haven't done before. We've done art. We haven't done arsonists before. We've done a bombing, mm-hmm. but not an arsonist. And I was like, oh, this one seems very straightforward. And then I start finding local articles and other things. And it's like, oh, by the way, this also happened. And I'm just like, oh, great. I have a pedophile. So. Very, very sarcastically. Yes, 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 yes. In case that wasn't clear. Yes. So we start our story in Vinton, Virginia at 4.30 a.m. on August 29th, 1994. The fire department in Vinton, Virginia were alerted to a fire reported by someone driving by. Police and firefighters rushed to the scene, but by the time they got there, they were too late. Everyone in the house had passed. So they entered the building and immediately found 37-year-old Teresa Hodges on the couch. Her body was still burning, and autopsy later showed that she was strangled to death. They went upstairs as as they were putting out the fire, looking for people to evacuate, and they go into the first bedroom, and in the first bedroom, they find 41-year-old William Hodges. He went by Blaine. He was dead on the bed in the first bedroom, and he was not on fire, but instead he had a twenty-two caliber gun with the barrel removed near his left temple. So had he been shot? Did I miss that? Yes, he was sorry. Yeah, he had been shot in the head and okay. it looked like a suicide. Okay. The firefighters then moved through the house putting out more fires and they found the children's bedroom. And in the children's bedroom they found eleven year old Winter and three year old Anna, both shot in the head at close range, and only Anna had fire burns. Hmm. After the fire was put out, the police canvassed the scene and did background searches on the family. So they discovered that Blaine was a former U.S. Postal Service employee who was about to serve six months in federal prison for embezzlement. So they believed that Blaine was what we call in the true crime community a family annihilator. Robin, you've definitely heard of family annihilators because you've heard of Chris Watts, but the definition of a family annihilator is a person who kills their family and sometimes themselves in response to financial professional or relationship stressors these tend to be men in their 30s the thought process as messed up as it is is just that oh i failed my family so i'm going to kill them all and then start fresh somewhere else or i'm going to kill them all and then kill myself because I'm a failure as a man. Okay. So Blaine was 41, so technically not in his 30s, but they believed that he would fall under this category. Blaine also, as I said, worked for the U.S. Post. And the first recorded use of the term going postal was in December 1993, eight months prior to this incident, the fire. Have you heard the phrase going postal? Okay. I have not. So in this time, U.S. Postal Service people were overworked and underpaid. And there was a lot of stress related to that. And so there was this phenomena of people who worked in the U.S. Post violently attacking and or killing their supervisors, their coworkers, things like that. And so it became a phenomena that the U.S. Post then corrected by giving better benefits, paying more, giving breaks, things like that. 
it's like it's to the point where like going postal is going insane and being violent still in today's mm-hmm. vernacular so they're like well he fits the topic of a family annihilator he works at the post office he is about to go to jail for embezzlement open and shut case he killed his family killed himself that's what they were thinking so police went to go visit blaine's friend earl bramblett so earl was from spartanburg south carolina and they went to interview him about blaine's character because blaine and earl had been friends for 20 years earl had occasionally stayed with the family like living there he was regularly seen by neighbors helping them out by like building things babysitting the kids you know that kind of thing he would help them out financially if they hit a bind they were just really good friends Mm -hmm. and earl was currently staying in a motel in the same town as the hodges family but he had been seen at the house the day of so right before the fire started which was at 4 30 in the morning are they suspicious of earl so they originally go to interview earl just to be like hey does blaine seem like the kind of person to do this okay and what they did was they came up to him and they're like hey just letting you know your friend just and his family just died in a fire and the first thing earl did was grew very angry and say that son of a bitch offed his family and killed himself Okay. So he was given... Wait, wait, wait. No information. No. Oh. He was given no information okay. beyond this family died in a fire at their house. Okay. And Earl's first response was he killed his family and then himself. Yeah, that was a little... Hmm. So the police were like, let's question this guy and get a little bit more background on this guy, right? Mm-hmm. So... The police started questioning him more with the line of thought of him being a suspect in this interview. And then he immediately, Earl immediately grew defensive and said, why don't you go ahead and arrest me for murder and then just start sobbing? Wait, yeah. he started sobbing or he said, and why don't you start sobbing? No, no, no. He started sobbing. Like okay. Earl, who's like, arrest me for murder and then started crying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then they kept kind of questioning him. And then he was like, I'm going to kill myself because I feel so bad about their deaths. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So the police were like, there's something wrong with this guy, right? So they were like, this may not be a family annihilator scene. Let's go look at the crime scene again and actually sweep for DNA and evidence and stuff like that, right? So the first smoking gun is that they determined that the the gun at the murder scene that was against Blaine's temple they said that that definitely was the murder weapon however the barrel had been removed after he died so there was no way like if you shot yourself in the temple you're not gonna remove the barrel and then put the gun back here like so they were like okay so the barrel was removed after he died so there's no way he committed suicide and okay then when they had the autopsies they discovered that blaine was the person who died first okay okay yeah so there's no way it was blaine who killed his family i i mean i kind of from the way it was set up it kind of you know makes sense just because i knew you had said that this was a 
very much not surface level case. Right. And then the the missing barrel. And I am I'm not terribly familiar with Gun's Anatomy, but that doesn't sound like something that could be missing mm-hmm. if you just used it and didn't touch it afterwards. Yeah, the f- I don't know if I if it was one of those things where they ri- wrote it out thinking that everybody who would read it would be like, oh, that's obvious it wasn't a suicide because you can't do that. And I'm like, I don't know how guns work. Maybe the barrel, like, self-ejected. <laughs> I don't know how guns work. Well, I feel like they would be like, and then the the barrel was to the side. You, you know, yeah. like, it would have been around, yeah. I'm assuming. But, I mean, everybody wrote it as if it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that you could remove the barrel after shooting yours. I don't know. But yes, so they determined the barrel was removed after he had been killed and Blaine was the first person who died. So I want to be completely clear for the Hodges family, this was not a family annihilator case. So the next thing is that a witness had seen a car similar to Earl's car drive past the house during the fire without stopping so the logic there is that he was fleeing the scene because if earl was as close of a friend to the hodges and he happened to be near it and see the fire he would have gotten out of the car had a neighbor call 911 and try to save them you know like he yeah yeah so that i also feel like that's something anybody would do yeah, no, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, this was before cell phones, so, like, obviously he didn't even try to make this argument because they didn't know what cell phones were. But it's like, looking back at it now, there's no way you could say, well, maybe he was calling 911 from a cell phone or something, you know? When exactly was this case again? 1994. Okay, yeah. Well, you have car phones in theory. Yeah, but they aren't exactly the most well-off people, and I believe car phones were kind of expensive. From what I hear they were, I genuinely have no idea of the evolution (laughs) of, like, phone technology. Right. Other than cell phones were invented the year we were born. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Earl's sister provided police with a box that he had sent to her and asked her to hide. So this was a completely sealed box with, like, the words do not open on it. And... (laughs) Sorry, that is so suspicious. And so before she opened it, she brought it to the police and said, Earl gave me this box to hide. And he had given her the box before the fire. The police opened the box. And this is where the pedophilia comes in. Oh, okay. There were several audio tapes of Earl talking about his sexual attraction to Winter the 11-year-old girl who died in the fire. He also said that he believed the entire family was conspiring to set him up for child molestation charges, saying that Winter was being instructed by her mother to purposefully be alluring to Earl so that he would molest her so that Blaine could then have him arrested. Okay. All right. I, I, okay. Mm-hmm. Please take that with a salt lamp of salt, like a house size salt chunk of salt. No, like, listen, like what I, you say that and like, obviously that is not what was actually happening in the right. house. Like yeah. there's absolutely no way that that's what was going on. This is either his interpretation of it or it is, I don't even know why he would record these things into a recorder. So I don't know if he's lying into the recorder. I, I don't even know, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I, I'm going to get into it a little bit more, but he has diagnosed paranoia. So, okay, okay. yeah. So uh, it's probably... We, we can believe then that he, like, actually thought that, that that's obviously not what was going on. Right, right. And it's like, I don't care what an 11-year-old is doing. I mean, they could be doing a full-on stripper set. They shouldn't be. But you would not find that alluring if you weren't sick in the head. <laughs> like... Yeah. 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 So that was in there. Oh, and also there were photos of the two girls taken by Earl. And they didn't seem to be in the disgusting category but they were photos of the girls that earl had taken that was in this box so they were obviously special for him so Mm -hmm. they also found his pubic hair in the bed where the girls were found okay they searched earl's office and they found stick figure drawings with arrows pointed to the places that matched the bullet wounds on the Hodges families. So basically it was three stick figures and he drew an arrow pointing to the exact place where the bullet holes were in each of the two girls and the father. And this information was never released to the public and they had reason to believe that he drew it prior to being notified about the fire from the police. But after the crime? After the crime. So... I'm going to give you what Earl said his time of what he did later, but basically he was at his office when the police came to interview him. Okay. Yeah. At the office, they also found... So Earl had his own office that had a bathroom, and one of his coworkers was in the office, and he saw water leaking through the bathroom door, and so the coworker opened it thinking there was a leak, a clog, or something, and in the bathroom, he found... Earl's pants soaking in like the sink I think it was they didn't put much detail but the police took the pants and they found stains of the same flammable liquid that was used to start the fire at the Hodges home okay and then so yeah (laughs) can you believe that there are still people out there who believe he was framed and he's innocent Are you serious? Because I was just about to say, so this is like, there, there's no mystery to this case is what I was about to say. Like, this is like, oh no, to me, from th- what you're telling me. Yeah. No, 100% people believe that the police fabricated everything and that Earl was actually innocent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I'm sorry. Okay. So they're the same type of bullets that were used to kill the victims. The casings were found in Earl's car. And in a motel room that he was staying in. Same bullets or casings. I don't know what the difference between a bullet and a casing is, but... Perhaps the casings hold the bullet. I really should actually know this better than I do. We I really, really should. To, we need to take an anatomy of a gun class if we're going to talk about true crime stuff, I guess. But... We probably should. Honestly, it could just be a simple Google search. We really... Okay. Well, okay, I tried looking up ca- casings and, like, it just kept bringing up pictures of what look like bullets to me and it's like the bullet goes in the casing i'm like but that's a i don't know okay and i decided not to dedicate too much time to it (laughs) um so they found the bullets in the hotel room and in his car and then once word came out that earl was being investigated two women stepped forward and testified that in the 1970s when they were 11 and 14 earl had given them alcohol and molested them 
Okay. How how old was Earl at that point? I'm assuming older. I'm yes. assuming this was a case. I'm, I'm asking just to make sure, like, is this a case of pedophilia or is this just, like, a case of rape? And it's, but if they were, like, that young, it would probably be that unless he was, like, 12. No, he was, I think, in his 20s or 30s. He was old enough to be working as a coach at a high school. Okay. Gotcha. Because he was, like, 60. No, he was in his 50s at this time of period. So in the 94s oh, and the okay. 50s, yeah. Okay. So these women testified at court because, spoiler alert, Earl does end up getting arrested and having to go to a trial. So these two women testified that he had given them alcohol and molested him. And there was actually more lined up. Some of them had come willingly. Some of them were subpoenaed by the prosecution. However, the judge cut them off after two, saying that two was enough. Okay. Basically, I guess he didn't want to spend time listening to their stories, though. I'm honestly, like, I feel like they deserve to have their stories told. But anyway. Well, yeah, I guess that's, like, the question. Because, I mean, if it was saying, like, if the rest of them were people who had been subpoenaed, who didn't necessarily want to speak, and you're like, well, we get the gist with these two. Right. Like, totally. I mean, and I don't really have a legal leg to stand on on this. I'm just looking at it from the lens of if they don't want to talk about it, perhaps the judge was saying they don't need to talk about it. We get it. Right. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's not the only thing that he had against him in his past as well. So he was a suspect in the 1977 disappearances of Tammy Akers and Angela Rader. So these two girls were 14 years old and they worked for him at a shop that he owned at the time. And Earl allegedly told his friends a couple of years after their disappearance that he wished he had not hurt Tammy. However, he was never charged for either disappearance and their bodies were never found. So we're going to kind of do a case within a case kind of situation right now. And I'm going to real quick go over the Tammy Akers and Angela Rader disappearances. So on February 7th, 1977, Helen, who is the mother of Tammy Akers went to a drugstore, leaving her daughter at home. Tammy said that she was going to meet up with Angela, and Helen said that was all right because they were best friends. When Helen came home, Tammy was not there. The next day, when neither Tammy or Angela showed up to school, the police became involved. So Helen described Tammy as, quote, spoiled rotten, but said she only started getting into trouble around age 12. She had ran away with Angela a couple times before, And this caused police to not take their disappearance seriously. So it was actually quite a few years before they really started investigating it. Really? Yeah. Okay. So Tammy and Angela would hang out and occasionally work at the silk screening shop owned by Earl. Earl's wife, Mary, had two sisters about the same age And Tammy and Angela would hang out and occasionally have sleepovers at Earl's house. And Helen said that she never suspected Earl, that he never talked much to adults, but there were always kids around him. Not just mine, but just kids. And I don't know if you've heard a lot of pedophilia cases, but in several that I've heard of, they tend to be men that parents trust their kids around because they're just so kind and always have kids around. Oh, if these other parents allow their kids to hang out around them, then it's fine for my kids too kind of situation. There's so many elements of grooming that 
look like it can be from the outside if you don't know what you're looking for look to just be a totally normal loving mentoring friendship right and tammy's mom was honestly like well she's she has a job at 14 you know she's working at his silk screening shop he's teaching her how to be responsible and stuff like that so she saw it as a blessing Mm -hmm. but um several years later after tammy and angela went missing the police heard about a party at earl's house earl had gotten drunk shot off a gun and then cried saying he wished he hadn't hurt tammy and that is what triggered the police to start investigating a little bit So police did question him, but they said that they didn't learn anything. And in defense of what he said, Earl claimed that he had said it because he felt guilt that he had not, quote, done anything to steer her in a better direction, end quote. He then said, I will again express my opinion that Tammy Akers died in a bonfire in Central Florida around 1980, and the police are aware of this, and they have withheld it from the public. He offered no explanation on to what this Florida thing was. And the, yeah. po- and the police were like, there's no connection to Florida. And then yeah. later, a very pro-Earl website I was reading. Claimed- there's a pro-Earl website? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, there okay. is. Uh, a pro-Earl website was saying that, like, Tammy's mom got a phone call from Tammy like two years later saying she was all right but nowhere else had this information anywhere and i wouldn't trust it yeah no i feel like earl (laughs) was the one who said that to someone he has a tendency of saying things as if they were fact and these pro earl websites are saying well this is a fact earl said it all right all right um (laughs) We, we need to have a class on, um, not things that we, we need to understand, but, like, I think the world could use just a class on, um, what, what is it called? Information literacy? Yeah. Being able to deduce whether you could likely or less likely trust a source. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, the mother of Tammy Akers, Helen Akers, was against the death penalty for Earl because that was something that was brought up in court. Okay. But not because she thought he was innocent, but because she believed that if Earl died, she would never discover what happened to her daughter. Valid. Uh, she said, quote, I'm glad that he will never be free to hurt someone else, but if he never says anything, I'll never find out what happened to Tammy. When he dies, it goes with him. So, mm-hmm. Helen did reach out to Earl's lawyer to request to ask Earl about Tammy one more time, but she was ignored. And the Tammy-Angela case was not mentioned during the trial for the Hodges family because the attorneys were concerned that the lack of hard proof would just sway the jury into thinking, well, there's no proof there, it's no, you know, so... I understand that. Yeah, they were afraid it would just kind of distract from what they were trying to get done, I guess. Dorothy, who is Angela's mother, and Helen both provided blood samples to the police so that if their daughter's bodies were found after they died, the police would have something to compare DNA to. Dorothy did pass away before 2003, which was the trial for Earl, but Patrick Aker, Tammy's older brother, still dedicates himself to trying to figure out what happened. The police did search the house that Earl lived in when Tammy and Angela disappeared. However, the current owners 
did not give them permission to dig inside the house. And that's where, so they had a dirt basement and the police believe that's where Tammy and Angela's bodies could be. But because the owners didn't want them to be digging in the basement, they were unable to determine if this is the case. Which, it's your house, I get that. And maybe it would cause major structural damage. I don't know about a dirt basement, but if I had police knocking on my door saying that there's a chance that there's two girls buried in my basement, I would be like, yes, please. Please go check that out. Please go check that out. And yeah, same. Yeah. Same. I mean, something like, some things are just incredibly important and you kind of gotta You have to sacrifice Mm -hmm. your convenience for that. And and maybe it would would be more than convenience. Maybe it would be like a huge financial toll, but you're also talking about like someone's life or in this case, someone's death. Right. And And also laying bodies to rest. Yeah. 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 That was what Tammy's mother, Helen, was saying. She's like, at this point, I know my daughter's dead. I just want to find her. You know, mm-hmm. but Linda Owens, last name is currently Owens, but she's Tammy's older sister, did testify in court. She was instructed not to talk about anything with Tammy, but instead only to speak out about his violent, the Earl's violence in the time he brandished a gun. However, outside of trial, Linda did share her story saying that. Earl had started molesting her at age 12 and he forced her to have sex with him and she said he she believed that he started with Tammy when Tammy was nine and okay and she said after I got older I realized this man always had young girls around him he always surrounded himself with young girls in 1984 he was also charged with molesting a 10 year old girl but he was acquitted from that the police believed that based off of his history And the evidence found at the scene that Earl had attacked Winter, that Teresa and or Blaine had found out, and Earl was afraid that they would turn him into police, so instead Earl snuck in in the middle of the night, killed them all, tried to make Blaine look like the guilty party, and then set the house on fire. But he either didn't account for the fire not spreading as far as he planned, or mm-hmm. he was just not a very intelligent man. So you're saying this is the police theory, yes. right? Yes. So, yeah, the, I mean, the minute, and again, I, I went into this knowing from you that this was a topsy-turvy case, but um, the minute you were saying, like, there was a woman who was strangled on the couch and the house was on fire, I'm like, oh, so he, he killed them and then the fire to co- try to cover it up, and perhaps it's just that maybe they lived in a neighborhood and the, the fire people got to the that's a stupid way of putting it but basically that the people noticed the fire put it out before it was able to destroy the evidence that he intended it to do. right complete yeah okay I, that was what they were saying it was either that or he just wasn't intelligent enough or didn't know that the police would be able to determine what order the bodies were killed you know I so that happened too yeah so. I'm, I'm actually kind of i'm i'm kind of wondering how they were able to determine that. I mean, I know that it can be determined. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious as to how they do it. I know that body temperature is a big factor, but I feel like but there has to be hours of difference heat, and then the there's the fire. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know forensics, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but 
Darn it, Zoe. Especially we have, 19- to have that class too. <laughs> Especially 1990s forensics. But yeah, I don't know. I, it, it could have been something like Blaine's blood was found on one of the girls or something like that. You know, because yeah. if, if whoever killed Blaine then had blood on them, or it could have been like I know there's with a gun, there's blowback. I don't know what it's called, but where it like come, reflects back onto you. And then when you shoot mm-hmm. the next bullet, sometimes whatever gets blown back in the first shot gets put out in the second shot. I don't I know. I just watch her all on bones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Earl insisted that he was innocent, saying that everything that the police found against him was either circumstantial, planted, or fabricated. He claimed that the police had taken the pubic hair sample from him before the hair was found in the girl's bedroom and that the tapes that his sister turned in were altered to give an impression that he was attracted to Winter. Can't they take a pubic hair sample? I yeah, that, like, that, I... <laughs> that's what got me. I was just like, um, so the police came up to you, like, before you were a suspect and said, hey, can we take a chunk of your pubic hair? I would simply say no. <laughs> <laughs> like... And I don't think a judge would issue a warrant on that unless something was already found at the crime scene. I was just like, I'm sorry, I cannot be subpoenaed for my character. <laughs> I, I know it's not something to laugh at, but it's just incredulous that he genuinely believes people will be on his side. And then people were. Yeah. Okay, so. Ain't that the darndest. Uh, Earl pointed <sighs> fingers at a mentally ill man who worked with Blaine. But I couldn't tell if that was investigated or not. Earl also believed that there was a local drug dealer who had it out against Earl. And his argument was, well, I'm sorry, not against Earl, against Blaine. And his argument was that, well, Blaine had been taking the money from work for the embezzlement thing. But you can't tell what he's been spending the money on. Obviously, he's been spending the money on drugs and he didn't pay up. And so now a drug dealer is coming to kill him. And it's just like, okay, so that's what you're saying now, but when the police first investigated you, you were saying, oh, he killed his family and then killed himself. And it's just, his story doesn't stay straight. Yeah. And his story does not stay straight. When Okay, before I knew, like, the, the turn it was going to take into Earl, for sure, uh-huh. when you were saying that he had said to the police that, oh, this that he did it, you know, like, you know, he killed his family and everything. I was thinking that, like, there's a chance it could have been that, you know, he had, he had seen them earlier that day and that perhaps Blaine, which we know now is false, was, like, kind of raving like he was going to do that. And perhaps, and this is obviously not the case, Earl had talked him down or thought he had talked him down, left, and he's like, ah, I knew it. But, no, this all makes much more sense. Yeah. And, yeah. And, like, if you look at his story that I'm going to go into his story that he said, but it's like, he didn't even talk that he saw Blaine in the last like 48 hours. So it's like, but he did. That would have been such a good excuse. No, he didn't actually. Well, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously to kill him, but prior to that. (laughs) Gotcha. So, so he also claimed that a relative of the Hodges family had told him that the gasoline had been used to start the fire. And the lab results then later came back saying that, yes, it was gasoline to start the fire. And Earl claims 
that's only a thing a killer would know. Or the killer would know, excuse me. And it's like, well, most people would probably assume that it was gasoline that started the fire. Or if a relative... First of all, the relative could not have said anything to Earl at all. Earl could just be saying this. Second of all, the police could have gone to the relative who could have been next to Ken and said, yeah, it was a gasoline fire. Somebody said it on purpose. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it it was just weird. And I'm like, I feel like your pants with the actual oil on it is a lot more damning (laughs) than... Than you saying that this person said, oh, this common thing to start fire started the fire. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, Earl's defense claimed that some of the evidence was inadmissible, including the evidence gotten from the motel, which is the bullets, but some of it was also in the car, so I don't understand why they were fighting against that. And they were also saying that the box of audio tapes and photos that he sent to his sister should not be admissible for some reason, but the judge ruled that they were admissible. Um, Yeah, they're very admissible. I'm sorry. Like, what? The, the box of it was me that is what the box is the box yes. it said could have said it was me i don't know why you even have that box after you commit this crime let alone give it to some somebody else yeah yeah okay. yeah no i'm with you and i kind of get the point of like it was a motel room and he's not the only person who was staying in the motel and honestly motels aren't known for being the cleanest you know So, yes, it could have been left over from another person, but the same bullets were found in his car. So even if you ignore the ones found in the motel, it's still evidence. Were the bullets found in the car evidence? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So when it looked like he was about to be the number one suspect to be arrested, Earl ran away. He ran away from Virginia to his hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he lived there for two years before he was found, arrested, and brought back to Virginia. This hurt his case because people believed that only guilty men run. However, Earl was diagnosed by multiple psychologists with, quote, severe delusional disorder, end quote, which caused him to believe that he was the object of a massive conspiracy, a disorder that had been recognized prior to the murders. And so his defense was saying because he has this mass paranoia where he believes that everyone's out to get him, that's why he ran. Not because he's guilty. Okay. But he's still guilty. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I mean, I was thinking partial. he was guilty before this. Yeah. <laughs> So Earl was in jail prior to his trial because it was one of those situations where it's like, hey, your bond's set at this very high rate that you can never hope to pay off. So mm-hmm. he was in jail and at the tri- uh, and before the trial, he spoke to, his, to a fellow prisoner named Tracy Turner. And Tracy Turner testified that Earl, at his, cor- at his trial, that Earl had told him that he was addicted to young girls and that he had been caught with one of the girls by Teresa, and he also said that Earl had recounted the crime in considerable detail to Tracy Turner. So Uh, that lines up with what the police thought happened. Right. All right. Now, this is where it kind of falls apart a little, but not really. It's just, like, kind of skeevy. There was a witness named Dorothy McGee, not the same Dorothy that I mentioned earlier, This is a woman who testified about seeing his truck leaving the crime scene. So she had initially claimed that she saw a red truck 
speeding away at the time of the fire. However, Earl's truck was white, so prosecutors convinced Dorothy that because of halogen lights in her truck and on the street, that the truck appeared to be pinkish red when it was white. And so in the trial, Dorothy said it was a white truck that she thought looked pinkish red. However, those halogen lights... So this is where the this kind of runs in because this trial is happening in, I believe, 2003. No, no, no. It's happening in 1997. Okay. So the trial's happening in 1997. The crime happened in 1994. But those halogen lights weren't a thing in 1994. They came out the following year. I mean, either way... I mean, okay, if she originally thought she was seeing a white truck... She originally like, thought she was seeing a red truck. And, and the, he had a white truck. And he had a white truck. I mean, I, I feel like you're not gonna see a truck of one color and then be and then actually be a different color unless you have like color blindness or something right so I, i'm not really buying the halogen lights thing no matter what right yeah so like that in itself it was like okay so that to me says that it wasn't earl's truck but that does not to me say earl wasn't the killer yeah because yeah. there could have been lots of trucks driving. So the defense argued that Earl was not competent to stand trial because of his mental illness, his history of paranoia, and his delusional disorders. But he was brought into trial anyway because the judge was like, screw that. And then the defense also claimed that the investigators conducted multiple illegal searches and withheld information from the defense. I wasn't able to get more information on that, but that was what they were claiming. Okay. So, let me give you a little bit of Earl backstory from that pro-Earl article, and then I'll tell you what Earl's side of the story was from a similar pro-Earl article. So, both of Earl's parents were alcoholics. Earl was the youngest, and his family would move regularly. Since he moved so frequently, Earl was able to make friends quickly and he, but he also stayed in touch with those that he left behind. He was considered the, quote, popular high school athlete. So he was very charismatic. He dropped out of high school. I'm sorry, college. He went to college in California, which is like, whoa, because he stayed on this side of the country the whole time and then went to college for California, in California, dropped out to be closer to his father and his brother. And so he started working at his father's silk screen printing business. He quit that and then he became a track coach at a local high school where he met Blaine Hodges, a student athlete. They became close friends, but then Earl's father grew sick, so Earl went back to the silk screening store and then took over when his father passed. I believe his mom had already passed by this point. That's when he met his wife, Mary, and they had their two sons, Mike and Doug. In the article, it's at justicedenied.com, they said, quote, all was well for several years, but soon Bramblett's need for space and his former lifestyle of coming and going when he pleased presented problems. Divorce was inevitable, and soon Earl returned to his former lifestyle of seeking good times, end quote. And keep in mind, he was still with his wife when he was allegedly molesting teenage girls. So I'm like, I wonder yeah. if it was that kind of lifestyle or she found out, you know? Could have been. Um, so they... Weird phrasing either way. Yeah. And I'm going to read a couple more quotes from them because it's just the audacity of these quotes that just make me mad. And I don't think there's a way to paraphrase it. 
So the site said in the very next paragraph, quote, many of the teenage children of the neighborhood sometimes found errands that they could run or small jobs that they could perform for a few dollars at the print shop. Earl knew many of the older teens, 15 and 16 year olds, and may have had sex and given alcohol to a couple. Uh, uh, Right there. Uh Right there. But but don't worry, because they excuse his behavior of statutory rape because it was the 70s. And most of these, quote, girls would be having children of their own in a year or so. So it wasn't anything to get alarmed over. I'm alarmed. I'm very alarmed. alarmed. I'm so alarmed. I'm so alarmed. Okay. So... Earl became paranoid that the police were watching him. Maybe it's because he kept being allegedly, like, accused of statutory rape. And so he closed the printing shop and he started working odd jobs here and there and just moving a lot. Staying in his truck, staying at Blaine's place, um, staying uh, at a motel, just wherever he could find a bed to rest. Then Blaine, who had stayed in touch, got married and Earl was at the wedding. He was there for both Winter and Anna's births, and he stayed near them or with them all until August 29th, 1994, which is the day of the fire. Oh, okay. So, on August 28th, 1994, which is the day before the fire, this is Earl's side of the story. I would like to say again, this is Earl's side of the story, so I'm going to say it as he says it. Okay. So, he says, he stopped by on August 28th to get his camper top from the Hodges' house. He had planned to ask Blaine to help him put it on top of his truck, but when he got there, Teresa and the kids came out and they had a cup of coffee while chatting, and Teresa asked him to take them for a ride. And so, Earl said that Teresa did not go inside to tell Blaine that they were leaving, so Earl's thought that either Blaine wasn't there Or Teresa and Blaine were having an argument again. And so Teresa and the kids get into Earl's truck and they go and they get hot dogs and they have a picnic on the Blue Ridge Parkway. While they were having the picnic, Winter said, Earl, can you please stay the night tonight? Because I'm very scared. And he said, why are you scared? And she says, someone is going after Blaine, but Blaine said he would handle it. Obviously, probably she said daddy or whatever. But, so, apparently, from the mouth of the babe, as in baby, um, Winter apparently was said that Blaine had somebody coming after him, but Blaine was handling it. So, they went to a couple more Outlook areas to look, I guess, and then they returned to the house, but then Teresa said that she needed to call another mother nearby to bring the girls to school the next day in a carpool situation, because the next day was the first day of school. But when they got to the house, Blaine was not inside and all the phones were dead. So Earl brought them to a convenience store to borrow their phone. On the way back to the house, Teresa remembered there was some sort of like neighborhood meeting happening that night, but she didn't feel like going. So she asked Earl to park a block down the road so that people wouldn't know she was home and skipping the meeting. She even went as far as to put notes on the front and back door saying that there was an emergency and that they were not home. And I want to stress at this point that everywhere they went, Earl said that Teresa talked to someone. 
oh, they were at the park. She talked to the park ranger. They were at the convenience store. She talked to the clerk. And it was like, I'm putting my two cents in here, but it kind of felt like he was trying to be like, oh, go talk to the, the park person. He'll tell you he spoke to Teresa, but I don't think they either ever did talk to the park person. So. Okay. So, yeah. So she put up notes saying they had an emergency and they were not home. It's worth noting those notes weren't up when the fire department arrived. Earl planned on staying the night, but Teresa said that she thought Blaine would get mad if he stayed, even though he had stayed the night several times before. So he left. He slept in his truck at his workplace. He clocked in. He left to run some errands, and then when he got back, he had messages from a friend and from the police. He then marked off his clock-in time because he hadn't done any work, but police said that he was trying to hide the time that he clocked in. So this was back when it was, like, literally a, like, a piece of paper that you put into the machine and punched holes. Mm -hmm. So he marked off his clocking time, and then he called the friend who had left a message and the friend told him about the fire. So that's how he knew before the police arrived. Okay. Yeah. But okay. Okay. And that's where Earl's side of the story stops because from that point, the police are involved. So we know exactly what happened, you know? So he was tried, convicted and sentenced to death in 1997. The jury deliberated for only one hour. Okay. He did petition the governor of Virginia to not be executed, but he was denied. He appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but he got denied there as well, though three of the judges did ask to have a temporary stay so that they could have more time to look into his case. But they, I mean, it was only three of them, and so it was not the majority. Yeah. So the reasoning for the petition that he had was that his attorneys claimed that the testimony from Tracy Turner had been recanted, that Tracy Turner admitted that he had lied in the hopes of regaining his position as the prison trustee. However, again, this was Earl said he was in prison, walked up to Tracy Turner, and Tracy Turner admitted that he lied to Earl. Okay, I'm I'm really not taking <laughs> yeah. Earl at his word. Yeah. Though there is one thing that Tracy Turner's account of the events which he claimed were told to him by Earl were inconsistent with medical evidence in, in the order that the family was killed. But I don't know if that would be something that's like, well, maybe Tracy Turner was lying or if it was he just didn't remember correctly. Yeah. And I don't really think that Tracy Turner is the linchpin in this case. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. Earl was executed in the electric chair on April 9th, 2003 at 61 years old. His time of death was recorded at 9.09 p.m. He chose the electric chair over lethal ejection as a form of protest because he swore he was innocent all along. And he said, quote, I'm not going to lie down on a gurney and have them stick a needle in my arm and make it look like an antiseptic execution taking place as a result of a fair trial. However, his attorneys tried to challenge the Virginia law that allows prisoners to choose, claiming electrocution was barbaric, and they even said they have no idea why he chose electric chair over lethal injection. So he denied a final meal, but his final words were, I didn't murder the Hodges family. I never murdered anybody. I'm going to my death with a clear conscience. I'm going to my death having had a great life because of my two great sons, Mike and Doug. You blessed me. Be strong. And there were a dozen protesters that held a candlelight vigil outside the prison during his execution. Like for him? Yeah. 
because they believed okay. he was innocent. Interesting. And that is all the information I have for you, Robin. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, you remember the Shayna Huber's case where I was just like, I can see it from both sides. Like, after reading his yeah. story and reading her story, like, just her story, I was like, oh, yeah, she's innocent. Well, innocent. But then I read his side of the story and I was like, oh, maybe she's not as innocent. There, I mean, there's a lot going on. So There's a lot going on. Very complicated case. So here I was like, oh, I'm going to read his side of the story and maybe my opinion will change like it did in that situation. And like, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't at all. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so I, wait, he's passed away in 20, 2003? Yeah. You said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, this one feels pretty cut and dry. Yeah. And my only like sadness out of this case is that the um, two missing girls, Tammy and Angela, they didn't get mm-hmm. the closure. They didn't get the closure. The mom didn't get the closure. I'm. This is the thing that, like, really... There's lots of things that really suck about it, but it really sucks just how long it took for something to stick mm-hmm. to him. Because mm-hmm. everything else, for decades, it sounds like, had been just brushed under the rug or just not substantive enough or... Or anything like, and so it took this to to get something on this guy yeah and like if i had any doubt about it being him the thing just the fact that he fits the typical look of what a pedophile looks like it's just like well he always has the kids around him he's paranoid you know it's just like Mm -hmm. this man was not right in the head no and then you have the box the i did a box the i did like the minutes the the minute that that box came into like police possession it feels like it was over yeah yeah and it's like everybody's saying oh the evidence was circumstantial i'm like do you know the definition of circumstantial like literally the bullets were in his gun or in his car excuse me there was one site that was very very pro earl and I, went, I can't help but wonder if it was, like, maybe one of his kids. But it was very pro-Earl. And it was like, they never found the weapon. And it's like, but they did. It was at the house. It was in the hand. Yeah. Like, so just the fact that you were saying... Just because he didn't leave the weapon on the scene. No, 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 no. The scene, it wasn't... It was in the bed with Blaine. That was the murder oh. weapon. Just because he left the weapon at the scene. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I'm like, what do you mean they never found the weapon? And, like, there's literally a thing that was like, no weapon, no bodies. And it's like, are you talking about the Tammy and Angela case then? And it's like, but if you are, he was never tried for that. Like, I don't know why you're upset about that. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing, Zoe. Well, you're welcome. And I hope this has been a lovely Sunday morning for (laughs) you. Oh my gosh. Well, everybody, if you appreciated listening to listening to today's episode, please rate, subscribe, review, tell a friendo, and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash haunted hospitality. For just $3 a month, you get a new episode from us. Yes, and it comes out on the 13th because we're spooky. If you want to see my sources for today's episode, huge shout out to Murderpedia. You can head over to hauntedhospitality.wordpress.com. And if you have your own spooky story, whether that be true crime or paranormal, you can head out right to us at 
haunted hospitality podcast at gmail.com i forgot the name of our podcast it's okay Um, or you can slide into our dms you can find us on the interwebs we're on facebook instagram and tiktok at haunted hospitality we are also on twitter at haunted hosts we hope to see you there stay Stay spooky. spooky